You are listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland, Maine, and broadcast on 1310 AM Portland, streaming live each week at 11 AM on WLOBradio.com and available via podcast on drlisa.org. Thank you for joining us. Here are some highlights from this week's program. It was only later on when I got to sort of a, a fuller, more holistic approach to understanding what money is, how we value it, and how we use those values to make decisions on a day-in and day-out basis, that sometimes what's right for one person is absolutely the wrong thing for somebody else. A painter will paint, a dancer will dance. I needed to write, um, and I kind of wrote my way through the cancer. Um, I know we all hear that it can be incredibly cathartic to um, have some kind of artistic expression around disease, and, and I have to say, I, I couldn't agree more with that. It was actually one of the greatest surprises of my life, how freeing it was to write through the cancer. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin with Remax Heritage, Robin Hodgkin at Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists in Falmouth, Maine, Pierce Atwood, UNE, the University of New England, and Akari. Hello, this is Dr. Lisa Belial. This week's show, which is airing on Sunday, February 5th, is our Health Wealth Show, show number 21. And we're going to be speaking today with Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, Susan Conley, author of The Foremost Good Fortune, and I have sitting across the microphones from me, Genevieve Morgan, my co-host. Hi, Jen. Hi, Lisa. It's going to be a great show today, I think. I think it is going to be a great show. This is, this is a very favorite topic of mine, the relationship between individuals and their health and their money. It's interesting how that's connected. What have you seen in, in your practice? Well, we often talk about levels of wellness, and people come into me and they will have some sort of a health crisis. They'll have a back issue, they'll have a neck issue, they'll have had a heart attack or some sort of, some sort of trauma um, that oftentimes is coming along at the same time as a transition in their life, whether this is a divorce or a job loss or, or even something that needs to transition that they haven't quite gotten to yet. Right, sort of stuck there. Yes. Causing them a problem. Exactly. So there's something underlying in their life that they haven't dealt with. And many times this has to do with money and financial security. Well, it's sort of a dirty secret, people's financial status. I mean, there's a shame about talking about money or, or somehow connecting your health with your money. And so I find it interesting that we're doing a health show and we're including a lot about finances and people's relationship with their money. There is a shame that's associated with it. And I'm not sure why that's so, because if you think about money, all it is is it's a currency. It's something that enables you to do something you want to do, whether that's feed your family, put a roof over your own head, your family's head, or go on a vacation. It's a currency. It's an exchange of something, not unlike energy, which we talk about all the time on the Dr. Lisa Radio RM podcast. Well, and some people seem to make a lot of it with very little effort. And it's, for some people, it seems to be hard to come by. So it's a, a big difference between individuals. And 
And I think that this does get to the root of the shame issue that you're describing, which is if you can't be one of those people that makes enough money, then it sometimes makes you feel as if you're not quite as powerful as you should be, or you're not quite as creative or intelligent. It just strikes, it speaks to your ability to function in this world and in this society. And certainly not having enough money to meet your needs creates a tremendous amount of stress. And stress is very bad for our health, as we know. Stress is very bad for our health. And stress and money issues are also very challenging when it comes to your relationships with other people, particularly your spouse or your significant other. Um, our relationship with money is very reflective of our relationship with ourselves and how we think of ourselves from a, you know, whether we think of ourselves as highly capable or as being impoverished, whether we think of ourselves as being enough or not enough, whether we're confident or not confident. And we bring that into how we interact with other people. That's true. I mean, how you value yourself. I, I'm hesitant to go into this whole idea of, of, well, positive thinking will make you rich, but there is a sense that if you value yourself then you and you're connected with your sense of self-worth, you're more apt to connect to your money and making money and your financial health. Well, there is that sense, although it's not entirely true because I know plenty of people who make lots of money and they aren't entirely connected. So yeah. it's interesting. Or happy or healthy. Or happy or healthy. So it's not always a direct correlation, but there certainly is a correlation. And when things start to fall apart in a relationship in a very significant way, um, you will often see a parallel decline in um, financial status. And divorce lawyers will tell you that this is so, that people will come in and they will leave um, in a, well, they will leave in a far poorer state, but they also will come in in significant financial distress, especially today. But and one of the things that I hear you saying is that money is an important factor in health, but it is just one factor. And so relationship, physical health, um, which I think Susan Conley will talk about later on in, in her book, that they're all aspects of, a, of, a, of living, of well-being, and that Sometimes when people stop stressing about money or can take a, a step back from their financial stress, they can find other ways of motivating themselves. It's not all about money, in other words. Success isn't all about money. Well, it's not all about money, but it is all about valuing oneself, knowing what one has to offer in this world to oneself, to other people, to the, peop to the greater world. So um, Tom Shepard will talk about the fact that um, you need to know where you are starting from. And Linda Verrill and Frankie Chapa will talk about um, enabling teenagers to sort of write a value statement. And it's just knowing who you are and what you have to offer. So it, it doesn't necessarily have to be financial, but there, it's just, again, there's such a direct correlation that we thought it would be important to. Well, and interestingly, I think we have a society where we're tempted by the pill, like a, the, to fix everything with a quick pill. But what you're saying is that, uh, I think, that um, that kind of mentality takes over with the money piece too, which is, oh, well, we should all just get rich quick. Like there's gotta be a secret out there that will help us stay healthy and be rich. But it's really a process. It, it is a process. And I write on the blog on a daily basis and um, somebody who reads the blog for me said, you know, one of the things you need to stop talking about is showing up because you keep talking about showing up all the time. And I'm like, well, but that's what there is, is you do have to keep showing up. And this is why I talk about it a lot, because this is a major theme, is you may not get rich quick, but there is a sequential, um, they call them success spirals that occur over time, that if you can get a little bit of success and you show up the next day and you get a little bit of success, and this is whether it's true with money, relationships, valuing yourself, any of those things. 
Um, and one last thing that I thought would be interesting to talk about is this idea of the secret. Because this this became very famous. I don't know how long ago it was, but there was a marketer who went out and talked. Well, I've about, been visualizing a lot of stuff every day, and it still hasn't come. So, <laughs> okay, but this is what I this is what I wanted to talk about. Is you can visualize all you want for the positive, but they do have studies that have shown that this idea of mental contrasting that actually works. So if you can visualize sort of where you'd like your life to go and set some goals and some um, intentions. But at the same time, there has to be that other side where you're visualizing where you don't want your life to go and maybe where you've been. And um, you have to have be able to hold those two ideas in your head simultaneously. And there's a researcher in New York um, who has been working with this for 20 years and has had great success. So you have to be able to do both. And they say there's a sweet spot. You know, if you're overly optimistic or this whole sort of idea of the pan gloss where everything is good all the time, then you're not going to succeed. So people who have read The Secret and they're beating themselves up because they weren't positively thinking enough or speaking enough, it's because it doesn't work. You have to be able to do both. You have to be able to hold the contrast in your head. And you can be successful. Well, and there we go back to the currency of exchange, that it's never just one, one easy way. There's always something balancing it out. And this week, we will talk with Tom Shepard, Susan Conley, and find out more about how this is related to health and wealth. We're fortunate on the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and podcast to have the University of New England sponsor a segment we call Wellness Innovations. This week's wellness innovation comes from Psychology Today and an article called The Epidemic of Financial Anxiety, What You Can Do. Here's the good news, something we have had the pleasure to witness many, many times. When people step outside of the norm and are not being driven by anxiety about money, many new perspectives as well as new opportunities surface. Sometimes they surface from your hobbies or passions. Sometimes they are vocational routes that were right in front of your face, but you've been blinded by old habits and defenses. Most importantly, we need to stop being carriers of the financial anxiety contagion. Knowing and exercising your affluence intelligence will help you regain the locus of control for your finances and your life. Read more about this on psychologytoday.com through the Dr. Lisa website, And read more about the University of New England at www.une.edu. Support for the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour comes from the University of New England, UNE, an innovative health sciences university grounded in the liberal arts. UNE is the number one educator of health professionals in Maine. Learn more about the University of New England at une.edu. Today's first guest is a friend of our show from the very beginning, Tom Shepard. And he and I are sitting with Genevieve Morgan. Hi, Genevieve. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Tom. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on your show. So, Tom, we decided that we wanted to bring you on the show because you have a very interesting perspective on money and how it impacts the family, how it impacts the individual. And we recognize, both as individuals but also in our chosen fields, that health and wealth, they just can't be separated. This is true. Give us a little bit about your, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do 
and how you came to this place. I am currently a financial advisor. I, I own my own firm called Shepherd Financial. We work out of Yarmouth, Maine. And um, we recently um, established ourselves as an independent firm. And uh, so we're going through a transition right now, and we're really excited about being able to get our message out to the world um, with our new brand and, and you know, help people understand what we're all about. That um, We really believe that money is more than just stuff, um, that it's, it's got elements of it that can really help us live healthier lives, wealthier lives, and have better relationships and uh, manage our time better and all kinds of other benefits. Um, I actually got into the business of being a financial advisor because I was a teacher um, of math at Gould Academy up in Bethel, Maine. And um, I wanted to help the kids um, get an experience in that last year where they didn't have to take math but might elect to take a class that was associated with it anyway. So we created a personal finance class that um, was a lot of fun. I mean, I had four kids the first time I offered it. And uh, we, we got to dive really deep into stuff, um, but clearly had a nerve the next time we offered the class. There were 17 enrolled, and um, that makes for a different dynamic. But, um, you know, talking to the kids about money and helping them understand um, some of the things that they were going to wrestle with um, led them to go home, talk to their parents. And they, it was the kids who said, you should talk to our parents. And I said, you know, that might be a good career move for me. So that's how we got into um, deciding to become an advisor. So what do you think it was about the kids and how you were impacting them that caused them to want you to talk to their parents? What were you saying that was so striking to them? I, I think one of the coolest exercises that we were able to do with the kids was, um, you know, take the math part of what they were learning, which was the power of compounding of interest over time and um, connect some of their expensive little habits or hobbies, um, the six Mountain Dews that one student would drink every day. I mean, aside from the, the nasty health benefits, we wanted to show them you know, how much more money you could have if you could figure out ways to, to, to do that habit either cheaper or just eliminate it altogether. Um, he used to pump quarters into a very expensive vending machine and there was a store just not that far away. So the walk would have been good for him, and it would have been cheaper if he'd just gone and bought a big, giant two-liter bottle. And uh, so it was, it, was, it was just helping them, you know, recognize that um, not only is your health impacted as a result of the habits and addictions that we all have, um, but also, you know, there's a, there's a financial impact as well. One, one of the things that um, I bring to my practice is the personal experiences that I've had with respect to money and finance and careers and transitions. Um, been through a lot of transitions. Um, the first one was getting out of college and, and working for Pratt & Whitney as an engineer, getting laid off um, during the recession in the early 90s. Um, I, I sort of try to decide what it was I wanted to do next. And I thought, you know what, teaching and coaching and working at a boarding school might be something I should, I should, I should try. And the only thing I could get was an internship. So I went from $30,000 a year to $6,000 a year. That was a big leap. 
went from you know working as an engineer to uh being a football coach and a dorm parent um to uh to to teenagers who really weren't that much younger than me at the time and you're originally from upstate new york you grew up in a small little town called fayetteville outside of syracuse um where it snows a lot and um the whole reason we settled on Maine was because I wanted to be closer to the coast. I wanted to be close to the mountains. You came to the Qigong class that I teach, and in the Qigong class we talk about energy and building one's energy. And, of course, over time you and I have often said energy and money, they're very much the same. It's just a currency. It's a different sort of energy currency. Well, that, that struck me, too, when you were describing your the way you identify different habits that people have with money, it's very similar in some ways to some of the things that Lisa sees in her practice about how people manage their health. I'm interested in, do you, can you do a quick description of you know, the roller coaster and the, the, different, identi- the different ways that people work, have habits with their money? Um, I can probably give you a couple of my own habits that um, you know, I've either had or have been working on overcoming. Um, you know, it used to be that when I would leave the office at uh, five o'clock for my five-mile drive home, I'd stop one mile into it at a at a local convenience store, and I'd I'd buy myself a bag of Cheetos. You know, I didn't need to spend the money, but there was just something about my health and and my my condition of of needing to get some some sugar or salt or whatever. And uh, it's just a funny place to be spending money on Cheetos four miles from home and arriving home and, and, you know, I just spent the last four miles licking my fingers and, you know, trying to hide the evidence. When everybody, whenever anybody asks me to sort of talk about money, I, I, one of the things I have to do is I have to go back to the beginning and say, you know, what is it? What is money? Money for me um, in an ideal world would be everybody going to work doing something they love and then that, and, and putting putting love into it, and getting something out of it that they can then turn around and, and share with some with other people, and and just having that go around, um, and around, would be a great basis for our economy. Um, you do this, I do this, we help each other out, we share. Um, but what happens in the relationship that people have with money is they go through. Um, about seven different levels of of um, of relationship to money. The the first one, um, and and I the name I have for it is 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 insufficient. You know, I would even call it level zero. You feel like a zero. You feel worthless. You feel like, um, you know, you're just not everything that you can be. You may in fact make most of your decisions based on reaction and instinct. Um, it's all done at a gut level, um, and you know I've, I've I've known people and and clients who, you know, they just don't take the time to think about what's really the right next step. They just take a next step, and uh, so that's sort of the first level. The second level um, uh, is often a roller coaster ride. Um, you might make a lot of money. Um, and then you spend lots of money and then you make very little money and you don't have enough. And, and so that's kind of the second stage is, is the picture I would paint would be a roller coaster. 
the third stage would be where you know you're trying to nail it all down. You're trying to make uh, the right amount of money to meet the right amount of expenses. Um, you're trying to control it, but if you're not careful, it starts to control you. Um, there's lots of tools out there to help people sort of track where their money goes, but all of a sudden, the next thing you know, you're addicted to tracking where your money goes, and you're wasting time, another valuable resource, <laughs> um, doing something that really doesn't add any additional value to you. Um, the next level for me is where you actually get paid to do a good job of managing your resources, whether those resources are time, money, stuff, relationships, your health. Um, you're creating value that can then be repurposed. So you can take some of your excess savings and you can do something else with it. Um, lots of folks get to that level and then maybe take that purpose and just plow it back into those other three levels. Deal with the crisis, deal with the ups and downs, try to nail down, try to, try to reduce your debt. Um, that's a spending mentality and it's, um, it's very similar. The, the whole financial um, system, the problems with our current system financially are very similar to the problems with our food system, which is we can create lots of food, but what's really the value of it from a nutrient standpoint? We can create lots of money, but are we really creating the value for ourselves that we want? And so there's a, there's a jump, there's a big step from having money, controlling your spending and taking the money and investing it, creating a second skill set. We'll return to our feature after acknowledging the following generous sponsors. Akari, an urban sanctuary of beauty, wellness, and style, located on Middle Street in Portland, Maine's Old Port. Follow them on Facebook or go to akaribeauty.com to learn more about their new boutique and medispa. And by Robin Hodgkin, Senior Vice President and Financial Advisor at Morgan Stanley Smith Barney in Portland, Maine. For all your investment needs, call Robin Hodgkin at 207-771-0888. Investments and services are offered through Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC, member SIPC. If you, you were talking about these stages of sort of money understanding and development, so what you're talking about in that restructuring is 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 more is further down the line. Mm -hmm. First, you had to go through that initial phase, that fear phase, right. I, I believe. Fear is 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 definitely one of those um, uh, one of those emotions that um, if I could only. I wouldn't be so afraid, or if I could only, I wouldn't be so worried. Um, so fears are um, looking backward and thinking negative things might happen. And the antidote to that oftentimes is looking forward and identifying how you can take that fear and hedge or manage that risk that you see as, as a potential and turn it into an opportunity. So you can take a negative and turn it into a positive if you can get to a more neutral place. If you can get to a place where you're not being ruled by any of your emotions, but you're still in touch with your emotions 
you can make better decisions. One of um, one of the things I've observed is is um, there are lots of folks who think that they've reached a certain level of success with respect to their wealth, um, but because they're disconnected from it, they are you know it might all be in a retirement plan or a 401k plan. It might be money that's been set aside for college or a specific purpose, but that purpose is way far off. They feel wealthy because they see what their wealth looks like on paper, but it's got no practical application for them right now. Which you've said is kind of a problem when people are dealing with money is that they disconnect from their money. And the worst case scenario is where you've got wealth over here that you can't touch, and you've got debt over here that's adding to the expenses um, that are making it harder for you to live now. And uh, especially in a situation like we're in right now where, you know, the economy's not that strong. Um, there are plenty of folks who have put money away for retirement, but now they're laid off. Maybe they have to go in, and all of a sudden it's more expensive to access that money. So some of the things that we do when we're going forward don't work as well when we end up in, a, in sort of a backward period. Yeah, one of the things that we've done um, in, our, in our firm is, is to study um, you know, the history of money. Let's go back over not just the last 10 years, but let's go back and look over the last 50, 100,000 years so that we understand really what money is and that it goes through these different cycles. And by, by, by understanding what it is, knowing that it goes through these cycles, but knowing that it evolves over time, one of the things we re need right now is we need a Wall Street that's scaled for Main Street. So if we could figure out a way to get our food system to recognize the need to shrink back down and get to a human scale, we probably need something similar, a, a, a similar movement to exist that will bring our capitalist structure back to a human scale. But at the same time, it also has to exist in a global environment. And that's the challenge. The challenge is, how do you continue to evolve globally while also bringing the scale back down locally. And Maine's, Maine's a really neat place because you know, it's small enough where you could take any system that is benefiting us on a national or a global level and you can come back and you know, really work very quickly if people were directed well enough to, to create something that would be very useful for us here. Much healthier, smaller, scalable, um, and I'd love to see that happen. Tom, did you come to some of these lessons not only as a teacher, but through some of your personal experiences? Um, one, one, one of the things I, I um, bring to, to my financial planning practice is, uh, you know, I'm not afraid to go out and, and make mistakes um, so others don't have to. I mean, I, I've, made, <laughs> I've made lots of financial mistakes. Um, from failure to recognize the value proposition between a private school and a public school when I was trying to select colleges, um, um, buying beer for all my friends at college um, on a credit card uh, that I'm probably still paying for, um, you know, leasing a car, buying a car, um, owning a, owing a two-family home, buying a single... I, I, I've made 
lots of decisions and, and, and not all of them have worked out for the best. But one of the things that um, I've always tried to do is pay attention to why I made that decision. Um, and if it didn't go well, why didn't it go well? Where did I go wrong? And learn from it. Uh, let me let me let me take back what I said. You know, I haven't made every mistake in the book. <laughs> some of some of what I'm able to bring to uh, uh, forward from from my experiences are the mistakes that you know either clients or family or friends have made around me. Um, you know, one of one of the lessons early on that I sort of was, you know, well that's not smart. Um, was a decision that my um, brother-in-law made regarding his 401k plan and paying off debt. So, so even though when I talk about there being different levels and at one level it's an investment that reduces your debt, um, um, for my brother-in-law it really came down to, I think, you know, this is me speaking um, many years after the fact about why I think he made the decision he made, was there are four things people value. There's time, relationships, stuff, money falls into that category, and your health. And um, I think he got to a certain point with college loans and debt that had piled up of feeling like he just, you know, that was robbing him of certain energy um, to advance his career, to do better um, financially. So if I look at his decision to cash in a 401k and pay off all his debt from a mathematical standpoint, from a financial standpoint, it doesn't make any sense. So when we start talking about the interconnections of health, relationship, money, and time, sometimes it's time to make a decision to do something with your money that actually pays huge dividends, say on the relationship side of things, the relationship you have with a spouse, the relationship you have with yourself, an employer, um, that sort of, sort of space. So, you know, that's not an example of a mistake because it turned out very, very well. His career took off very rapidly after he made that decision. Um, but I viewed it as a mistake when I first saw it. It was only later on when I got to sort of a, a fuller, more holistic approach to understanding what money is, how we value it, and how we use those values to make decisions on a day-in and day-out basis that sometimes what's right for one person is absolutely the wrong thing for somebody else. And this is the reason that we had you come in and talk to us today, is that relationship between health and wealth. I mean, it's, it's not just about how do you manage your mutual funds. It's about from what you've seen in your own practice. You've seen that people, when they feel scared, they get anxious, they can't sleep at night. Um, and it does have a very, there's a very primal relationship. It's very foundational. Can you talk about some other examples that you've seen? The better connected I can be to how I feel about the value decisions I'm making with my money, the more aware I am of the impact that those decisions are going to have, not just on my health, but also on my relationships, the way I manage my time. So if I can manage my time well enough, then I can get enough sleep. If I can get enough sleep, I won't be tired. I won't need the extra caffeine. The extra caffeine won't kick me into a craving mode that then starts to, you know, pour cheap, no value calories into me. Um, my energy will improve. And if my energy's better, I can be more productive. And the way that you get paid is to be productive <laughs> and do something that you share with other people that's very positive 
And um, so when I think about the connection between health and wealth, um, I think plenty of people try to put it into a box and then forget about it. That's oftentimes why they hire me. But the difference between what we used to do when we first got into this business and what we do now is um, I'll let them hire me. We'll look at the box, but we'll definitely connect them to, uh, to the inputs and outputs that are going in and out of that box and, and hopefully make it such that their money's allowing them to, to, to grow and develop and become you know, the person that they want to be today and tomorrow, not just 30 years from now. Well, Tom, I know that there's a lot more wisdom that you have to offer. And you have a new logo, you have a new website that's being launched very soon. Um, where can people find out more about you? Yeah, if somebody wants to find out more about Shepherd Financial and what we're all about, um, our web address is www.shepherdfinancialmain.com. And um, we are building our website. It's uh, under construction uh, right now. Um, we expect it to be launched in the next week or so. And uh, we're really excited about um, the information that's going to be on it, um, the artwork that's, that's being created that helps really, you know, picture tells a thousand words. And uh, hopefully, you know, just by going there, you'll be able to get a sense not only of where you are, where you've been, but also what your potential is and the path that you might go on in order to get there. Do you have any words of parting words of wisdom for people as they're listening and sort of embarking on 2012? I think this year is, an, is a very exciting year, um, obviously for us, because we got a lot going on. Um, I think this is a year for people to really get in touch with what your purpose is, um, stay connected to it, um, figure out how your money can serve you, can serve others. You know, hopefully it's, 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 it's a year that has you know, a mark on it out there somewhere around the 21st of December where the world's going to come to an end. Um, my birthday is the 22nd, and uh, I hope to see you all at my birthday celebration. Thank you, Tom, for coming in and talking to us today about the connection between health and wealth. And I know that people are going to be very interested in learning more about the type of um, services that you offer. It's been great to be on the show. Thank you. This segment of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible by the support of the following generous sponsors. Pierce Atwood, part of the Portland legal community for 120 years. Clients turn to Pierce Atwood for help with important deals and critical disputes, for creative solutions and sound advice about legal or business strategy, for peace of mind. For more information on Pierce Atwood, go to www pierceatwood.com and by Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists in Falmouth, Maine. Makers of Dr. John's Brainola cereal, find them on the web at orthopedicspecialistsme.com. We've just spoken with Tom Shepard from Shepard Financial about the relationship between health and wealth, and we now have an individual who has a slightly different perspective, but also very strong on the health-wealth um, 
side of things, um, she will be speaking with Genevieve Morgan, the wellness editor for Maine Magazine as part of our Maine Magazine Minutes. Thanks, Lisa. Today in the studio on the Maine Magazine Minutes, we have Susan Conley, an intrepid traveler in life and geographically, who has written a book called The Foremost Good Fortune, a memoir about her experience moving her family to China in 2009 and the adventures of many different sorts that occurred there. Welcome, Susan. It's great to be here. Why did you name your book, your memoir, The Foremost Good Fortune? Well, the book is a memoir about moving to China with my family. Um, We lived in Beijing for close to three years. And the extended metaphor of the story is moving through China and moving through cancer. And I really equated cancer with a kind of foreign land. Um, And if I read you the poem that um, goes with the title of the book, it might make more sense. Should I do that? I would love that. That would be great. Okay, this is from Dhammapada number 15. Hunger, the foremost illness. Fabrication, the foremost pain. For one knowing this truth as it actually is, unbinding is the foremost ease. Freedom from illness, the foremost good fortune. And I think when I read that um, at the start of many of my my book talks um, around the country, I get this sort of light that goes on in people's eyes, um, and the whole story begins to make sense on, on many different levels. Well, certainly when you're young and relatively healthy, you don't think about your health as a fortune, as a reserve. But then when you become ill, it becomes so clear. Yes, and I think when you become a mother as well, um, the sort of um, elixir of good health becomes even more um, magical and um, sacred. And um, it's only when illness really came knocking at my door that I realized all these other wonderful um, good fortunes that I had in my life. Um, So... This story of mine is, it's a story about tracing disease through motherhood as well, and how it resonates through a family, and how a family learns to put cancer in its place, um, and make room for disease in all of its different sort of permutations. Which I think is very important, because when you were describing in your book, Moving to China, you were talking about your, your boys being relatively young. And very active. I remember quite vividly one of the opening paragraphs about how you didn't have the boys that would go off and, I don't know, play Scrabble or something. They were the boys who were jumping on beds and were always with you. And so you really needed to make room for this in your life. We brought young boys to Beijing. They were four and six. They were doing ski jumps off the sidewalks and running up the stairs at the Great Wall. And they were um, fearless travelers. They were game for it all. Um, And then when mommy got cancer, we had to find a language for that and a place to put that so that it didn't take over our family, didn't take over our time in China. Um, And we we really learned to do that through um, a whole lot of honesty. Well, let's talk about your move a little bit, because you were born and raised in Maine, though you've lived in other places in Boston, in San Francisco, um, and you've always been a writer. Do you want to talk us to take us through a little bit of your background? I was the girl in sixth grade here in Maine who was always scribbling poetry and reading the lyrics to the 
the Jackson Brown songs on the album sleeve. Um, poetry was where language really came alive for me. So I studied it for years and years. Um, I got undergraduate and graduate degrees, and then I became a teacher of poetry. And it's always been that distillation of language that um, attracts me to poetry and still does. That kind of crystallization of the thing that can't be said any other way. Um, so I brought that, that um, keen interest in that economy of language to China. And I had a, a real intention um, that I set to write a story about my family moving to China. Um, and I did that for um, about 100 pages before, before uh, I found my own cancer. And in the end, the book became a love letter to the boys. It was really written for them and to them. And it's something that I hope they will read with great pride and um, delight when they're maybe in their 20s. <laughs> so it didn't start out as a book about cancer? No, it was a day-in-the-life book, a book about what happens when you watch your children learn a new language, what happens when you um, go figure out how to weigh Chinese apples at the market. And then it had to become a book about cancer or it was never going to be finished. And that was really my um, revelation, that there had to be a way to connect that mother, that, that carefree mother, with that new mother who had cancer. And, and was she the same? And was that voice the same? And the sort of breakthrough was when I went back over some rather scribbled notes I'd taken during the cancer treatment and realized, OK, I have a book here. It's actually the second half of that first book. And it's the same mother. I'm the same woman. I'm changed, but not necessarily for the worst. I think I had to get really open to the material. I had to um, come to terms with it and find my own language for it. And I, I hear that a lot with cancer survivors, this sort of needing to assimilate it, decipher it in whatever way um, works internally for them. So a painter will paint a dancer will dance. I needed to write. Um, and I kind of wrote my way through the cancer. Um, I know we all hear that it can be incredibly cathartic to um, have some kind of artistic expression around disease. And, and I have to say, I, I couldn't agree more with that. It was actually one of the greatest surprises of my life, how freeing it was to write through the cancer. When I found my cancer in Beijing, I went through an early phase of denial, which I think is now quite common. And I had a, a kind of on-the-spot lumpectomy in a Beijing hospital because I had come head-to-head um, -head with a sort of patriarchal, old-school Chinese doctor who really was dismissive of these, these lumps that we had found. And he wanted me to go far, far away for many months. Um, but I was stubborn, and I called my uh, wonderful woman doctor back here in the States, and um, she, she has some lines that I quote in the book that go like this. We never wait, Susan. We always go back in and find out. You can't wait. So then I called that, that Beijing hospital, and I said, hi, it's Susan, that American with the breast lumps, and we can't wait. Um, so as things go in China, things move really quickly and I had the surgery I think the next day um, and then things got zooey and a little crazy because it was clear we had 
malignancy and then they wanted to do an on-the-spot mastectomy and we sort of said wait and we um, put the brakes on and we actually came back to the states for the mastectomy. Well so you used the western model for the emergent surgical care that you needed and you came back to America for that but then you went back to China post-radiation and that was when the book started to change and when your perception about how to heal started to change. So I'm interested in that because that's a true, that's a real change, a real sea change for you. Cancer caused me to give up the reins, so to speak, and to begin to let go of that um, powerful control mechanism that I was sort of driven by, I think, here in the States. Um, Cancer is so humbling that um, there really wasn't much left to do but but give up control. Um, when we got back to Beijing, and, and what I did was I found a fantastic yoga teacher, a Chinese uh, woman who worked with me to get my strength back in my arms, and she also worked with me on all kinds of um, mantras and, and things that were incredibly helpful and grounding. And through her, I was introduced to five-element acupuncture, and um, I began to really open up to the language around the disease and, and to be able to say, um, yes, I have cancer, you know, and I um, am incredibly hopeful. I think this has a happy ending. Um, I've made room for it. I can find words to talk to my kids about it. Um, And once I sort of became that open, it all got very simple, and it was all about honesty um, and about living very much in the moment, as much as as I could. This segment of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour is brought to you by the following generous sponsors. Shepherd Financial, with offices in Yarmouth, Maine, the Shepherd Financial team is there to help you evolve with your money. For more information on Shepherd Financial's refreshing perspective on investing, please email tom at shepherdfinancialmaine.com for more information. And by Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage in Yarmouth, Maine. Honesty and integrity can take you home. With Remax Heritage, it's your move. Learn more at rheritage.com. I also love the part in your book where your dear friend Lily King says to you, Suze, you can't think your way through this. Because it seems to me that some of what was happening for you, at least in reading your book, was this opening to feeling your way. Right. For those of us who want to live in our heads, cancer really challenges that assumption And I think Lily was right that it was time to try to live more in my body, in my heart. Um, Acupuncture really helped that. And I found this uh, wonderful man uh, in Beijing who did a lot of acupuncture and acupressure. I remember going to him for the first time. He knew very little about me. Um, He spoke limited English. And it was a very special place, very quiet very um, spiritual, um, and it was all intuition and and touch. There wasn't a lot of verbal. And he began working on me, and he said, okay, we need to tell your body that it's okay to let go now. Do you have a sense for 
what you were holding on to, or do you have a sense for what it was that you needed to open up to? It's a really interesting question because I think my answer ha- has changed over time. And the obvious answer is is that big C control word that I think um, can inform a lot of what we do here in, in the West. But I also think that my, what I was holding on to was, was more primal than that. I think as a mother, when I was diagnosed with cancer, I felt this incredibly um, intrinsic urge to survive for my kids. So it was very simple. It was, if I can control this, if I can hold on to it, and if I can solve this, then I, then I can live. And if I can live, then my children will you know, have a better life. So it was really all about um, mortality for a while. And, I, and then I began to work through that. And that was a big turning point for me, was, you know, hey, you don't have to hold on to the whole disease and think it inside out. Um, you can let go. Um, you can trust. Now you came back to Maine a year and a half ago? Yeah. How have you taken some of the lessons that you learned in China and that opening and translated it back to your life here in the U.S.? What have you learned? There's a certain chaotic, wonderful, wild energy on any street in China. And that sense of um, potential that anything could happen on a given day is something that I try to draw on while I'm here in Maine. And then I would say yoga, 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 um, meditation, living much more in the body. Um, for, as someone who sits at a desk and writes a lot, I could, I could live in my head all the time. And um, for those of us who, you know, need to get that kind of release, for me, yoga is the perfect thing. So you're working on a novel. And yes. (laughs) And when will that be coming out? I just finished the novel. It's called uh, The Woman Who Cooked on the Roof. And it's about an Indian teenager who ends up in Paris in the late 80s. She's befriended by an American uh, teacher there who comes and helps her at her asylum center, and um, that teacher's brother is is dying, actually, of a disease. And I had written a draft of this novel before I wrote the memoir. So I think the, the fascinating thing here for me and for all of us who are trying to write the stories of our lives is that these stories weave together. So the work I did in the memoir and the work I did around getting honest with myself about cancer then Um, came to the novel and informed the novel. And I was able to write, I think, much more honestly and authentically about disease. Um, The novel will come out in about a year. It's with the same publishing house, Knopf, and the same editor as the memoir. So that's really nice because there's continuity there. Um, And then what else are you doing? Because I know you're very active in the literary world in Portland. Well, the telling room has always been very dear to my heart. Um, It's the Creative Writing Center here in Portland that I co-founded with two wonderful writer friends um, coming on about seven years ago. So um, I'm always trying to do all things telling room, um, trying to teach there uh, as often as I can and um, watch that organization grow in all these incredible ways. 
Um, I'm also teaching um, for the Stone Coast Writers Conference this summer, actually, at the Stone House in Freeport. I'll be doing some memoir intensives, excuse me. Well, that is one thing we didn't talk about. You are a wonderful, wonderful teacher. Thank you so much. Um, I feel like I... I love teaching and I can wear many different hats when I teach. And I have been teaching various workshops up and down the coast. Um, actually, I was teaching some in Beijing back in June. Um, and I'm always amazed by the power of the story and about how when you gather a group of men and women together in a room and you ask them to get really honest with themselves, they will take great risks and they will um, really show you um, how much story can transform human experience. So I've been deeply moved by that. I, I love teaching. Do you think that that struggle, the power of the story, potentially the illness, do you think that that also is a part of the wealth that you're describing? Not only health as being wealth, but also struggle? I'm happy to say in hindsight, yes. Um, it's, it's a hard-earned wealth. And you don't wish it upon people necessarily. I remember being asked um, at a reading by a cancer survivor if I would give up the knowledge that I'd gained through having my cancer to not have my cancer. And I was pretty floored by that question. She had an e a quick answer. She said she would not give, give up her knowledge. But she didn't have children. And, and there's the rub. Um, I didn't, I didn't answer her. I think it's a complicated question. Um, and it comes back to some of those sort of primal survival, mother, bear things that we were talking about. But um, I've learned so much, and I, I've learned that that struggle um, was not about being happy, but that happy doesn't necessarily mean growth, doesn't mean change. And um, as, I, as I said earlier, I, I'm definitely changed by the cancer, and I really do not think it's for the worst. How can people who have heard you today learn more about you and read more of your work? We did a website when we launched the Foremost Good Fortune, and it's, um, for me, more than just a, here's my book and um, here's where I'm reading. But we, I put a lot of content on there around, so what do you do if you find yourself um, with a cancer diagnosis? Um, what might you look for in your provider? Um, I also did where to get the best dumplings in Beijing, um, where to find the, the most crazy flea market in the world. So that, that website was fun. Um, and I did a blog on that website where I took on a lot of the topics that we've talked about today um, in various essay form. That's great. Well, we're so thrilled that you could come in today, and I am hoping that you don't get any more surprises um, that, and that you continue to add to your health and your wealth. And thank you for coming in today. And we will link through to your website off of the Dr. Lisa website, but do you want to tell people what your website actually is? So it's susanconley.com. Um, and I also um, pulled together a fairly um, detailed Facebook page. Um, which is a sort of an ancillary to the website, but that has a lot of stuff on it too. Thank you, Susan. Thanks so much. It's been a treat. Susan Conley's work can be found online. It has appeared in the New York Times Magazine, Plowshares, the Harvard Review, and the Paris Review, among other literary magazines. She was profiled in the March 2010 issue 
of Maine Magazine and was the recipient of the Greatest Women in Maine Award in 2011. To read more about writers like Susan Conley, go online at themainemag.com or pick up the latest issue at a local newsstand near you. Your life is calling. Are you listening? Our bodies are often the first indicators that something isn't quite working. Are you having difficulty sleeping, anxiety, or chronic pain issues? Maybe you've had a job loss, divorce, or recent empty nest. Dr. Lisa specializes in helping people through times of change and inspiring individuals to create joyful, sustainable lives. Visit doctorlisa.org for more information on her Yarmouth, Maine medical practice and schedule your office visit or phone consult today. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. You have been listening to show number 21, Health Wealth, airing on February 5th, available through iTunes and also on WLOBradio.com, streaming Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. This week's show included a conversation with Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial about the importance of evolving with one's money and growing as one's life grows. We went on and talked with Susan Conley, the author of The Foremost Good Fortune, who described the importance of knowing that not only is one's health of value, but also occasionally health crises. And it's all in how we go about dealing with these crises as to how wealthy we might become. We hope that you will continue to listen to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, co-hosted by Genevieve Morgan. For more information on our show, go to doctorlisa.org. Be sure to download the podcast every week and even become a subscriber at iTunes, Dr. Lisa Belial. Read our Bountiful blog at bountiful-blog.com. Or like us on Facebook. We hope that you are going to be able to create more health and wealth in your life as a result of listening to our show. And we encourage you to join us for next week's show, which will be called Happy Heart, airing on February 12th. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. Thank you for being part of our world. May you have a bountiful life. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin with Remax Heritage, Robin Hodgkin at Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists in Falmouth, Maine, Pierce Atwood, UNE, the University of New England, and Akari. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is recorded in downtown Portland at the offices of Maine Magazine on 75 Market Street. It is produced by Kevin Thomas and Dr. Lisa Belial. Original content produced by Chris Cast and Genevieve Morgan. Our assistant producer is Jane Pate. Audio production and original music by John C. McCain. For more information on our hosts, production team, Main Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, visit us at drlisa.org. Tune in every Sunday at 11 a.m. 
for the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour on WLOB Portland, Maine, 1310 AM, or streaming WLOBradio.com. Podcasts are available at drlisa.org.